0: Welcome to the MLHS Podcast, my name's Ian, as always, I'm here with Anthony, and today we're going to be doing something a little bit interesting, at least I'd like to think it is. We're in the off-season now, it's middle of August, there isn't too much going on, so we thought we'd do a bit of uh, introspection here, go back and look at some of our favorite guests that we've had on the show, and ask ourselves, what did we learn? Because I feel like the whole point of doing this podcast is to get into some deeper hockey discussions, and to help ourselves and the listener learn more about the game. We've had some pretty good guests on. I'd like to thank this year. We've been lucky. I'd like to, to say. Uh, I don't know how we get some of these guests connection wise. It helps having a producer or two who have cousins or uncles who go to the cottage with Scotty Bowman on vacation. I know that's that's coming handy. But Anthony, I'll let you start us off here. Which guest do you want to bring up first, and we'll get into a broader discussion about just what we've learned about the game of hockey and maybe how it's changed some of our perspectives on things.
1: Yeah, and uh, and I'm excited. We- I don't know about you, but i've I've been getting I've been seeing a number of, of nice comments about the podcast uh, since we've started. Been getting uh, some nice emails and and whatnot as well. And oh, also, we're introducing a new opening song today, uh, so I wanted to give that a quick shout out, just to to recognize that as as we got a, a nice email. So that was from uh, Marty Zalistra. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And uh, I know that one of his tunes was uh, featured on Hockey Night in Canada this past season, and and he sent a note and and said that we could use some of his music. So thank you very much. Oh, thanks, man. That's pretty cool. We're excited to to use it. It was awesome. We we loved going through the different options and and picking something. So that was great. And uh, and yeah, all that to say, like we've really enjoyed the the feedback and hope people are enjoying the podcast. And and we have had a number of great guests, as you said. So figured it was a good time to like go back and say like it's not just good enough to get the guests right it's like what are we learning as well as we go along and we read your comments and whatnot as well after we record and ian and i are both psychopaths and we of, we often re-listen to the podcast uh which is weird listening to your own voice but we're constantly doing it and i'll send ian a text where it's like great job or uh we were pretty shit this week so, you know, trying, uh, just trying our best. But I thought a good start would be with Ryan Ward from uh, our last episode, just because it's fresh. And and there was something that that kind of like caught my mind after when I was going through comments and, and go, re-going through the podcast a little bit in my head. And it was in particular when he mentioned the mad scientist comment about Sheldon Keefe. Because I did see some comments that were like, well, like he was, you know, puffing up his guys. And and I get that. I totally uh, understand that, that mind frame. And I thought a lot about the the Keith is a mad scientist comment. Because I don't necessarily know if I agree with it yet. I wish I pushed it a little bit more when we were recording it at the time. But when I thought about it after, I, I thought about a few things. One, I think... I think the team from a structural standpoint is actually very sound. I think he's done a good job of implementing a clean style of play that allows them to be strong defensively, but also productive offensively.
0: Yeah, I think when you look at the defensive results this past season, where he had a full off season to actually implement the, the, the system, the defensive results really shone and, and they had excellent uh, scoring chance suppression, shot suppression... That didn't quite exist the year before when he first came in, but it's really hard to bring in a brand new system on the fly, what, 20 games into a season?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the way that they kind of control scoring chances and they also manage to limit scoring chances against and be strong defensively while being strong offensively, I I, I genuinely think that he plays a notable part in that. And from that lens of things, I do, I do understand the mad scientist comment where... I guess I have my hesitations and I've, I've mentioned it sporadically throughout the, a number of recordings, but I I guess the best cleanest way to say it is I question the bench management.
0: Could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean?
1: Yeah. So, so going into that Hab series, I had mentioned, uh, a few times. I remember when you asked, you know, well, how could they lose this series? Um, which was a totally fair question.
0: We've all been asking it the last couple months.
1: Yeah, right. But this was going in, and I had mentioned, you know, Keith has been a little bit strange when the chips are on the table, and by that I mean the, the consistently. We've talked about it to where blue in the face, but like the the consistent answer for him has been. I'm just gonna load these guys up with ice time, like a few a few players.
0: Matthews, Marner. I mean, we saw Tavares on the top yeah. line in Game Five against Columbus, and William Nylander centering the second line, and that didn't work too well.
1: And and when I and then I thought about when when Ryan said last week, where he he mentioned as well that that Keith has already considered like every angle like 900 times over before he has a conversation with you. Right. Remember when he was talking about that, he'd be like, he might come ask you a question, but like in his mind, like he's already gone through. He's done
0: the Doctor Strange, all the possibilities.
1: Yeah. And I and I kind of like and I'm, you know, I'm not taking this necessarily as as I've learned this about hockey, but I'm trying to like learn about the team itself and its current iteration. And I kind of just sat there and reflected on it the next day and because I'm a loser. And I thought to myself, you know, like, I think this guy overthinks things.
0: Isn't that his job, though? Isn't that anyone who works in hockey, you're going to spend how many hours a day thinking about this stuff? It, it is, but I think
1: when you're when you're coming to conclusions like, I'm going to put John Tavares on the top line, I'm basically going to put all my eggs in one basket, and this like winner-takes-all game and do something that I basically haven't done at any point in the season, I think you're overthinking it. When you're sitting there and John Tavares gets hurt and William Nylander's blacking out, having a great series... And he's playing 16 minutes a night and people are going, why is William Nylander playing 16 minutes a night? And his answer is basically like, that's the time slot where he's effective, but Matthews and Marner can do like produce very, very little in 24, 25 minutes, but that's completely okay. And you can't bump up Nylander's ice time, even though you're already missing basically an elite player. I think you're overthinking it
0: i think those are fair criticisms i think those are very fair criticisms i think the power play is another area where if you're going to make a criticism about keith tactically or if we're talking about putting the wrong players in the wrong spots the fact that joe thornton was there for so long i think that comes down to managing personalities
1: and that's part of the bench management too right like managing those guys like when if you remember very early on when he got here he would like if things weren't working he would just blow up the lines And I loved it. And it was such a change from Babcock, right? Because Babcock basically set the lines in preseason and was like, well, this is it for 82. Plus, like, the seven in the playoffs when we lose to Boston.
0: I mean, didn't Matthews, Marner, Tavares, Nylander, weren't they attached at the hip all of this past season?
1: They were. But But his first little stint there, like, they would, you know, if the team wasn't doing well, like, two periods in, like, he would just come out and be like, I'm putting the lines in a blender. I'm mixing things up. And, and now when I look at the bench managers basically like, well, nothing's working. Like, what are we going to do? It's like, I know, I'll just play the best players more and gas them even further.
0: To be fair, there are worse strategies than playing your best players more. I think sometimes coaches forget to do that. Sometimes coaches get so obsessed with line matching. And you'll see Ken Hitchcock will be obsessed with putting his third line against the other team's top line. And then you look at the time on ice at the end of the game and Tarasenko's played 14 minutes. Something's gone drastically wrong.
1: You're right. So it's definitely the tough thing is, is with coaches, it's usually one extreme or the other. I just don't think he's found a middle ground. And that's where I look at bench management. Whereas I was I was a dog on a bone on Tampa's ice time distribution. And like if you like go look at their ice time for game seven against the Islanders, and that was borderline the cup. Like game seven against the island, like
0: you you've broken this down before, basically how no player gets more than twenty or twenty one minutes per night in the playoffs. It doesn't happen.
1: And and if you look, Tampa's top guys did not like Cooch did not play that much in that game seven. I don't even think I'm he referring broke... to
0: forwards, by the way. Yeah. To yeah. make that clear.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forwards. Um to, yeah, we should be clear on that. But like I don't even think Kooch played like eighteen minutes that night in game seven. And if you heard his comments after the HAB series, they pretty much knew the series was over the second it started against the Habs.
0: He got a nice endorsement out of that
1: game. Game seven, (laughs) game seven against the Islanders was basically the cup this year.
0: Yeah. uh, I mean, yeah, fair.
1: Right. And, and it wasn't like Cooper didn't come out and and say, well, shit, Braden point who has been the most productive goal scorer in the playoffs over the past two years. Shit. I'm going to play Braden point 25 minutes tonight and shit. I'm going to play Cooch. Who's basically been the best for like other than McDavid. He's arguably been the best forward in the league the past two years with the way that he's just completely crushed the playoffs. Like, he didn't sit there and say, well, fuck, Kucherov should probably push 30 tonight. It's game seven. This is everything. But I, I would sit there, and from what we've seen from the coaching staff with the Leafs, I'd sit there and go, well, it's game seven. We know what their strategy is going to be.
0: I mean, in basketball, I love it when a team will play a Durant 48 minutes in a do-or-die game. You're saying in hockey it's different because of the nature of the sport and the nature of the shifts and the fact that your legs can't pump that much for what twenty-four minutes in a crucial game?
1: You have to take hard shifts, right? In basketball, you can put you can say to KD, you're gonna play forty eight minutes and they're they're gonna load manage themselves throughout those forty-eight minutes and make sure they're good to go for, you know, the final eight when things get crazy, the end of each quarter, beginning of each quarter kind of thing.
0: They'll do the equivalent of taking shifts off on defense. They'll pick and choose their spots,
1: right? But you can't pick and choose your spots in a fast-paced game. So I don't know, when I when I look back, that was like one of my big learning lessons from that podcast. I was sitting there, I, I felt like I was learning about Keith a little bit indirectly when, when he mentioned, you know, I was felt like I had a better handle on framing him a little bit as a coach and a little bit about what he's seeing and what he's doing. I have one other comment on Ward but I know you have something so I want to pop it over to you.
0: I appreciate it. So I guess in a nutshell what I wanted to take away is that players aren't stupid and from listening to to Ryan Ward, sometimes when we talk about hockey players on Twitter on the internet in our articles, on our podcasts, I think we have this perception that there's the old school mentality 200 hockey men and that these guys just you know, they're not thinking too, too clearly about some stuff. And hockey players at the highest level know when they've screwed up. Hockey players at the highest level know when they've done something really well. So listening to Ryan Ward talk about the importance of communicating specific examples to players about very minor details in a game. You know, whether it's a video clip of how they picked a puck up off the wall or whether it's a back check in the neutral zone and angling a guy off towards the boards at the proper moment. There are very specific things that you can point to with players. And I I liked his way of explaining that communication. Another thing I wanted to bring up that I really got out of that Ryan Ward conversation was being able to communicate analytical concepts in a way that a professional hockey player can understand. Because you know me, I love my zone entries. I love my zone exits. I love my RAPM charts. I don't even necessarily
1: think it's just understand too. I feel like this is an important discrepancy. It's not just understand, it's something that's going to make sense to them that they'll be able to see a payoff for, right? Like, I think they will inherently understand, like, hey, if you skate over the blue line with the puck, that's better than shooting it down there and having to go get it. Like, nobody's that stupid. But it's about, like, framing things in a way where they're going to sit there, and much like the scenes from Moneyball in the movie, right, where he's he's talking about, How he does or doesn't want them to bunt. It's a process. It's a process. It's a process.
0: Yeah. Understanding the process that leads to scoring goals.
1: Yes. Like that. So that I just thought it was important to clarify that. Like they're not just like understanding like basic things. It's about framing how you're going to build to those, those key elements.
0: Yeah, and I was listening to a conversation between Allison Lucan and Mike Johnson. This was at an analytics conference that was held over Zoom because, of course, during COVID, we can't do these things in person. But uh, one of the things they were discussing was how do you go about communicating some of these concepts that are big in the analytics community that the latest research has shown that this has a positive impact on goals. This has a, a positive impact on preventing quality chances against how do you communicate some of those high-level concepts in terms of the math that goes into it? How do you explain that in a hockey fashion? And I think Mike Johnson's one of the best in the world at it, and that's why he's on TV doing this every night. He has a really great way of not necessarily using numbers or using graphs, but taking those concepts and explaining it in a way that you can understand as whether it's a hockey player, a hockey coach, a hockey fan. My mom or dad at home watching the TV could get the gist of what he's saying and what he's saying is something that's backed by the analytical community, It's something that's backed by research and I think that that's a skill that's so valuable and it's so difficult to master it and I think someone like Ryan Ward did a really good job on our podcast explaining how he goes about doing that and it's something that myself I'd love to do a better job of in my writing when I'm doing the report cards when the season starts up eventually. I say I don't want to do them, I'll probably end up doing them because at the end of the day I like to eat Uh, (laughs) again it's one of those things where you want to communicate these ideas in a way that's easy to understand but actually going through that process and doing it properly is a difficult thing to do and I really appreciated the way that Ryan Ward went about it and that was something that I gained from that podcast
1: the other thing that I thought and and this was another one that I I wish uh, I wish I pushed on this more and a friend texted me about this after one who played junior um,
0: Hashtag played the game.
1: Yeah, well, which is funny that, and I, I thought it was important to to frame that because he had texted me and said, you know, you can't talk about. There, there was a point where, where Ryan said, I don't want any of this to come across as anything negative towards Ryan. Ryan was awesome. I, I loved talking to him. His energy was. I think great. anyone who
0: listened could tell he's a genuinely yeah, really he, good dude. He, yeah. he
1: is a great dude. I, I really enjoyed chatting with him. So. Um I actually think a lot of the things that we are discussing are are more in reference to him kind of breaking down more so about like this Leaf staff that we're still trying to like figure out in, in large capacity. Uh but he mentioned, you know, um you know the, they faced criticisms in the Sioux, they faced criticisms in the Marlies with the Marlies, like they won a championship, like this formula works. Like, it's just a matter of time until they have success at this level. And I brought up my friend because uh, it was him that texted me and said, he's like, you can't talk about minor league championships in relation to the NHL. Like, these are way different things. First of all, the Sioux never won the championship. So let's be clear on that. Like, they didn't win any Mem... They didn't go to any Mem Cups. They definitely didn't win any Mem Cups because they were never there. Like, that's that's winning a championship... And they had, definitely they had some playoff success. They ran into the McDavid, Erie Otters. And to me, that would be a a good primer as to why you can't necessarily sit there and just say, okay, well, they were successful, Neo. Like, Erie tanked and they got McDavid and then they were sick after like a year because they had the best player in the O. And when when you have a player that good in the NHL, you can see that it basically can get you to the playoffs. But if you don't have a team around it, you're not going anywhere. But if you're in the OHL, having a player that good that is that much better than the playing field will pretty much take you to the finals. And if you can get like a few really sick players and if you can load up on some like older guys in the league for younger prospects, like there's a, pr- like the OHL, if you if really, CHL hockey in general, if you follow it, it's pretty cyclical um, in teams having success in terms of you know bottom of the standings working your way up getting some good draft picks and and like having that sort of wheel of of success
0: it's kind of crazy sometimes how quick the overhaul can happen
1: yeah right like it it's it's a little it's it's a little bit of a different cycle in terms of personnel and how you're managing it unless you're a franchise like kitchener or london and and, like, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We know how those teams are getting, how they are continually successful year after year. I'm not going to get into that, but we know. Just
0: shocked how good players just seem to keep finding themselves on the London Knights. Don't know how it keeps happening. I can't
1: believe guys continue to drop to 20th to London, and they pick them. I don't know how that happens. I'm just going to be stupid and pretend. Like, we know. So, unless you're, like, those teams, the rest of the playing field has those runs where they are successful. And if we're going to talk about the Marlies championship i mean if the Marlies didn't have the highest payroll in the league when they won i mean they couldn't have been much lower than top three top five
0: and they had a couple bona fide nhl players on those teams you know what's funny is they they should have won it earlier they yep. should have won it in 2016 when they had they, nylander and company i want to say they, they made it to the third round that year
1: they yeah and i forget if um i forget if this was on the podcast and we were talking to ryan separately i think it was actually on the recorded podcast. But, like, we were talking a little bit about how sick the Rico is. Like, in general, the facilities and the resources and what the Marlies have at their disposal compared to your general run-of-the-mill AHL team is not even remotely funny. Like, I cannot begin to explain to listeners how much more advanced the Marlies are because they just quite literally have money. Then, like, that pretty much puts them over, like, half the league right there.
0: I'm thinking compare Alabama football to a mid-major school or yeah. Duke basketball to a division 3 school. It's very difficult to compete when your resources, your facilities, it's, it it's difficult. Yeah. And that happens in the NHL too, but there's a
1: hard salary cap in the NHL. So the gap on how you can just like quite literally play out your resources and assets to further yourself from the field is entirely diminished like the nhl is a league of parody we've talked about this number of times gary loves his parody gary wants every team to feel like they got a shot and every team gets an all-star and we're handing out medals at the end of each season like that's the shit that the league wants so you can't just sit there and say okay well they were pretty successful in junior and they were pretty successful in the a including a championship because that's not even remotely the same as the NHL. It's not. If I
0: could push back and play some devil's advocate here, one hundred percent. Let me be a Dubis fanboy here. One hundred percent. I think the reason that you believe in it is because of the play on the ice, the the system, the structure, the buy into possession style of play. Something I truly believe in. The teams who dominate the puck tend to win hockey games.
1: Have they been a dominant possession team under Dubis? Have they ever finished top five in Team Corsi under Dubas?
0: I want to say XG they did this past season. But Corsi? No, and that's what's always been interesting about this team is that their shot differentials have never been that great, but their expected goals and their scoring chance numbers have always been much better. And I think part of that is Austin Matthews' inherent ability to just get to great spots on the ice and get good shots off.
1: I don't know if you were big. I don't know if you were not big, but... um around much on hockey twitter in the early 2010s
0: i created my account in 2016 so probably not
1: yeah okay so then you would have missed on this probably but basically like those kings and like hawks and like teams would would like win the cup or like whoever would go to the final four and basically a bunch of guys would go on twitter and just post their like top three ranked Corsi.
0: Cam Sharon wrote a big article about the LA Kings before they won saying that why aren't people considering this team a favorite they're really good.
1: And and I and I like what XG brings to the table. But I don't know why we've just decided that like team Corsi like suddenly doesn't matter.
0: Look at you being the Corsi guy on this on this chat. I appreciate it. Normally I'm the guy who brings it up.
1: But you're controlling play. And what did the hab what was the one thing the Habs genuinely had over the Leafs? It actually was that they controlled. I
0: I kept telling you this every week for a year that the Habs scared me because of their ability to control possession in a hockey game.
1: But I always said that I didn't want to remember when we had Kevin on, I said I agreed with you guys. I was like, the Habs are the team I want to play the least. Like they'll they'll crush the other teams. And I in fairness, I still think the Leafs would have beat the Habs if John Tfars didn't get hurt. But he did, and they didn't respond, and that's when I get into the bench management and all these other things. But the but like the general point is like they actually haven't been like a sick 5-on-5 team.
0: I thought this year they were. I really thought they were this year, but again, it's hard with the division. You'd like to see them against some measuring stick teams. But if you look at the expected goals for, expected goals against, scoring chances for, scoring chances against, quality chances, whatever you want to call it, they dominated play at 5-on-5 five five this year, just not possession to the extent I think that you would like them to.
1: The tough thing for me was, like, the games that I thought that they actually did that for, like, off the top of my head, was w- Winnipeg, they basically speed-bagged every time they played them. Like, it was embarrassing. Like, like you you only had to Zamboni, like, one side of the ice.
0: I don't think that's going to happen again this year, now that they have real NHL defensemen.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. But like, okay, so they speed bag Winnipeg, who didn't have a defense, and I don't know what happened to Pierre Luc Dubois this year, but it was embarrassing.
0: He he can't be worse than he was this past year. Again, he's going to regress. I think he's going to play better next year. Yeah,
1: I mean, he can't possibly be worse. And then they also they also like actually like tilted Edmonton hard especially that three game run where they, they pretty much like did whatever they wanted.
0: I think we take a bit too much out of that small sample from being a hundred
1: percent. But like, I'm saying like, other than against like those, like two teams, I don't necessarily recall sitting there just saying like the Leafs are just totally doing whatever they want here. And like everything is tilted in the other zone and, and they're like completely running play. Like I wasn't watching these guys saying like, they're, they're like fully tilting the ice. Like nonstop at like a five v five like high end Corsi level, sit there being like they're creating chances and they're scoring a ton, and their defense is pretty good, but it wasn't necessarily the same of of tilting yet. So there is a something there that's worth distinguishing.
0: I'm looking it up right now. Where do you think they ranked in five on five uh, shot differential Corsi four percentage? Where do you think they ranked?
1: Uh, what were they like ninth or something? Uh, tenth. Yeah, I, I knew they were around like nine ten, so which is like still really good, but it's not a lead. Do you know what they
0: were in expected goals? What? Second behind Colorado.
1: Yeah, and so...
0: Scoring chances? Second behind Colorado. It's
1: just super interesting. I think that expected goals has provided a bit more context,
0: and I think people understand expected goals a little bit better i don't think everyone was i, I like using scoring chances because i think more people can grasp that you know people who will be oh i'm not gonna listen to that chart i'm gonna like, oh but i like scoring chances i can under, i can get along with that
1: i think people can just generally speaking understand like the concept of of like counting like scoring chances versus just like random shots on net or shot attempts or whatever the case is but And maybe somebody's done the work on this and I just haven't read it, but I haven't read anything that's really suggested that we shouldn't follow like Team 5v5 Corsi and Team 5v5 Fenwick as like pretty much the Trump all at the end of the day because whoever's controlling the run of play, especially when you get to playoffs, like you're not gonna, unless unless you're playing like a true pretender, unless you're like Colorado in round one against St. Louis, like the margins are actually really thin. So whoever's genuinely controlling the shot attempt clock and giving themselves extra kicks, kicks at the can for bounces is probably going to come out ahead to be honest
0: so to, to a certain extent you're right offensively we can predict future goals better with scoring chances or with expected goals but defensively when it comes to predicting goals against Corsi's much better the, the actual shots against just preventing the other team from being in your zone and getting shots off from anywhere. That's the better predictor of goals against. And I think it's because of the inherent randomness of hockey. I think we're struggling at measuring defense right now. And the best way we have is shots against, but you're, you're not wrong. I think we're starting to go too far the other way with expected goals. We're like, Oh, this is the new thing, but Hey guys, course. still matters. Shots still matter. Having the puck still really matters.
1: And to that point, I, I think it's worth noting there's there's still like a third of the league is pretty shit every year let's be honest like that's
0: just that's just hockey that's any that's any sport
1: like 10 now that we're 32 teams like 10 to 12 teams are pretty shit every season and I get it like that's that's gonna happen it's not even a knock on the league or anything but when you get to the playoffs there might be like two shitty like genuinely pretty shitty teams that squeak in.
0: I thought the Montreal Canadiens fit that label. <laughs> they yeah. Made it to the cup final.
1: But every, but they're, again, like elite five-on-five five team. In yeah, terms of, right? right? But, but the point is, is the margins are super, super thin in the playoffs. Like they're super thin. So like when we're talking about some of those things, I just, that's where I sit there. That's where I sit there too with the bench management where I'm like, I think this guy might be just overthinking things to like a crazy level where he's, He's going over every scenario. I think sometimes you just have to have a gut feel for moving guys around or trying different things or, you know, I just, sometimes I just question who's in charge. Like, is it the players or is it the coach?
0: You know what? I I want to transition here because we've got other guests that I want to get to and we're already well into this podcast
1: here. Ryan gave us a lot. Ryan was great.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it, buddy. What did you learn most from your talk with Bruce Boudreaux?
1: that okay so this one was funny i thought so we talked to him about the power play and and he pretty much simplified it he was like i would be getting the pucks back to the point i would be getting guys to the front of the net i'd be getting pucks through and and everyone like especially on twitter a lot of heroes everyone just like collectively loses their minds on that like i honestly think ian passed out in his chair as bruce was telling us that (laughs) and it was right because everyone's like i was
0: was running the expected goals in my head i'm like i don't want two percent shots from the blue line
1: everyone's like running the expected goals and and i knew it too like when he was saying it like i'm kind of like smiling like i am as i'm saying this right now because i'm like oh man people are gonna be so mad when they hear bruce say this and you get like a lot of heroes and they'll logically try to explain things um on twitter and it may or may not have good reasoning to it and they'll think that they're right and they'll get like 100 retweets or whatever and everyone's like, "Yeah, look at this idiot. He's saying get the pucks back to the point and get pucks in front of the net." And I'm I, I just remember sitting afterwards and I'm thinking to myself, "Did any of these other people have success in the NHL because Bruce actually had success in the NHL? Like Bruce actually ran good power plays I hate that in the way league of thinking, man, But he That's got the, the results. You can't it's not I'm not sitting there saying this guy coached in the league. I'm saying this guy coached in the league and did a good fucking job. Like those are two different things.
0: No, I, I think I brought up the fact that when he ran the Minnesota Wild, they had the best uh, expected goals against, they had the best scoring chances against, they were the best defensive team under him. I, I'm well aware of the fact that he's had success, but that doesn't mean he's right about everything.
1: No, it doesn't. But when he's but when he's an expert on like, and he is, he has a good enough track record that he could be deemed an expert on successful power
0: plays. He does. But I would, if if I'm in the room with him and we're trying to break down our strategy and how we're going to score goals on the power play, I would push back hard against that that type of thinking just because I think when you have elite skill level, you can create much higher quality chances than floaters from the blue line.
1: But did they? Because they, because they didn't, well, he didn't say floaters. I mean, if you, if you have Matthews just continually teeing off, is that a floater? No, no, that's a good start to a power play. If you have Nylander continually teeing off and like I... Like, I know people criticize Wayne Simmons, myself included, at times. But he is he, he is a legitimately high-end net front presence. But do you want him on PP1 with your season on the line? No, not necessarily. But it might be Zach Hyman. It might be John Tavares. I mean, they, they have a number of, like, legit, they did. I mean, they still do, but just minus Zach Hyman. And they do have a legitimately good amount of above net, above-average net front presences. I just, I thought it was interesting how people kind of, like, take things and, I constantly have to remind myself now that, like, like Twitter's just like, it's not real life.
0: Well, I mean, no matter what, if you have an idea in hockey, you have an idea in some sport, it's going to get challenged, whether it's behind closed doors or in the public sphere on Twitter, on Reddit, on HF boards, wherever people are talking about this stuff.
1: And it's fine, and and if it has, like, a good level of, like, application and and demonstration but when it's basically like well that's not a high danger scoring chance but if you get the shot from here it is a high danger scoring chance like that's not like how life works like you sometimes you just actually have to hammer the puck through and like start getting like shots on net and start creating some chaos and start winning some battles and start getting like some flow of things and i just i think it was interesting how quickly that was disregarded the power play was shit the rest of the season. It sucked after it. It sucked in the playoffs. It was ba- it was unplayable. I don't
0: think it sucked because they weren't getting the puck to the point and getting point shots off. I think it sucked because they had Joe Thornton on there for most of the season and they didn't move players around to different spots.
1: I think it sucked because they didn't get shots on net. I think it sucked because they didn't do anything in front of the net. I think it sucked because they didn't win battles. I think it sucked because they had a guy in the bumper role that could not shoot, which in part... But that in part plays to rebounds, that in part plays to winning those battles, that in part, like nothing was opening up for them because it was just static. You can't, like you can map out passing plays all you want. Like if I said to you right now, like, okay, what would you do in the least power play in in zone right now? What would you do?
0: Which players, which which players are on the ice? I think that matters because Joe Thornton shouldn't be one of them.
1: Sure. You tell me who's on the ice. You tell me what you're going to do.
0: Okay, last season with the players they had. Yeah, sure. Uh, Marner at the left net front slash left corner. Nylander okay. at the left wall. Matthews at the right wall. Tavares in the middle. Uh, the was the what do you call it? The bumper, hmm. and either Riley or Sandin at the point. Get okay. more motion, get Willie and. But Marner what does more motion change? mean?
1: What does more? You just told me where everybody's standing, so now what does that go out all the window within three seconds? So
0: Willie and, and Marner are rotating, kind of the way Kuznetsov and Backstrom do, just on the other side of the ice. Who here. has
1: the puck when they're rotating? Doesn't matter. Well, what do you mean? Doesn't matter. I, I like, mean, they're Matthews high school players.
0: You're reading and reacting to.
1: So then they we're just like Matthews has no idea when they're moving.
0: Matthews is ready for one tease at all times.
1: Okay, so who has the puck when they're, like, it does matter when they're moving. Like, who has the puck Well, is my question.
0: High-skilled players have to be creative on a power play if you're going to score goals. goal. Uh, of course. I know War, Ward was talking about this, about how you can set up a perfect play, but then sometimes they'll get creative and two guys will switch to, to shed a defender. My question,
1: to be clear, is not, like, does Marner or Nylander have the puck in this situation? It's actually, do either of any of the other three guys have the puck in this situation? DeVar's
0: in the bumper, quick one-touch plays, Matthew's on the right side looking for one tease, the defenseman walking the blue line. I just, Marner on the right wall I, with a Thornton in the middle of the ice, running that for the entire year just seems ridiculous to me.
1: Agreed. But I'm saying, like, what you've articulated to me right now is, like, I'm not, like, seeing much if I was a defending penalty kill that I would really go out of my way to change, like, differently. Like, you're just, like, Matthew... Marner and Nylander are moving, basically, is what I've heard here.
0: Yeah, well, Nylander is the shot threat on the left wall. Matthews is the shot threat on the right wall. That's going to open up more lanes. You have Tavares available. Is
1: Nylander always a shot threat, though, if he's switching with Marner? So then half the time, Marner is going to be the one on the half wall still
0: the more motion you can create the more confusion you can create uh, it, it tends to help
1: yeah but it's not a lot of motion if it's just two guys switching which is really just my point like i think like and like i get it i think you're getting somewhere on it i'm just saying like i think it's harder to put things together much like to what ryan was saying it's harder to build something than it is to break something or people are just like yeah, like, just put this guy here and put this guy... Like, like
0: snap your fingers and that solves it, and that's not always the way things work. In my head, the way that I've said it's going to work, maybe you actually put it on the ice and it doesn't work out that way.
1: Hockey is a really simple sport at the end of the day. I know I've said this on this podcast before, but if you throw a puck into the corner and you send two guys after it, whoever comes out with the puck is probably the better hockey player. Like, that, a lot of it really just comes down to that, and I, I really understood what Bruce was saying in terms of like, just start getting pucks on net and start getting bodies to the net and start just creating chaos. And I think where Marner is most effective is in those moments of chaos because he actually does have incredible vision and his vision is not just like him chilling and like trying to create like backdoor sauce plays his vision because he can't shoot is a play is broken, and he finds the right guy.
0: Yeah, I agree, but that's why I'd want the puck on his stick, or I'd want to create more chaos. I don't want to quote unquote I, simplify my game and just take lower percentage shots. I don't think that helps you.
1: I think it does. If it, I mean, like I said this a million times, I, I'll I'll die on this hill. Their power play would have been better if they litter for those three months. If they just said every pass is going to Matthews and he's just going to one time it, and we'll see what happens. I mean, they didn't score. Like, they they got outscored over a month and a half on the power play. It was embarrassing.
0: I want to say their goal differential was dead even the last, what, 30 games of the year? Yeah,
1: and and you're telling me if they had power plays every game and Matthews took about, uh, you know, 150 one-timer attempts in 30 games or whatever, like, that they wouldn't have scored? They probably wouldn't have netted it. Like, something that simple.
0: The fact that this was the biggest problem with the Leafs and it wasn't fixed, it wasn't addressed, and the guy who ran the power play appears to be back for next season. I
1: probably never played a power play in his life.
0: Hey, you know, sometimes the best coaches or the best teachers aren't guys who actually excelled at it in the first place. They're able to teach it to someone else. I
1: agree, but those guys are probably guys that didn't play in the league at all, not guys that played in the league but then did not do that thing at all.
0: Potentially a very good point there. But can I bring up a point about Boudreaux that also applies to this? My my biggest frustration with the Leafs power plays, Joe Thornton just didn't fit there. He shouldn't have been there. Why was he there? Because managing personalities. Because he was a 41-year-old future Hall of Famer who only agreed to come to Toronto if he got to play on the top line with Matthews and Marner and presumably get some PP1 time. Talking to Bruce Boudreaux about the Timu Solani benching, about how he he waited him out at practice, shooting pucks on the ice for an extra 45 minutes while Boudreaux was standing there. That was a great story. It also speaks to the fact that when you're dealing with professional athletes... The job as a head coach is managing personalities. It's managing egos. That's a lot of it. You can be a tactical mastermind. You can understand the analytics, the eye test, the video. You could could be perfect with all of it. But if you can't manage these egos and these personalities, you're not going to have success. And I think the failure to take Joe Thornton off the power play earlier is a big part of the reason the least power play never really got clicking because you had a guy there that was never going to have success in the middle of the ice as a non-shooter. A non-shot threat in the middle of the ice makes no sense. And they wouldn't take him off there because there must have been some agreement to keep him there, the managing ego side of things. But that, that to me, is where you really have to zero in and say, okay, we made a bad decision here and we need to learn from this.
1: So I think there's another element to that as well, like building on that, which I think is an important note, which we've never really touched on in this podcast. But I think there's something also to be said about building that sort of team environment and culture where guys are playing for each other and they're they're not just pl- like they're they're willing to make those sacrifices for the greater good of the team because players inherently know right like the whole team knows if a guy doesn't block a shot if a guy legitimately jumps out of the way because he's like I don't want to get hit Phil everybody doesn't. knows <laughs> everybody knows right like there you know There is a video of a player on the Leafs in the playoffs who actively jumped out of the way of a hit going to a puck along the boards. And it, it became a thing. You don't think every single player was on the bench going, are you kidding me? You don't think that they know? You think they're that stupid? You think the guys playing in the game wearing the same jersey didn't see it and go, are you kidding? Of course they know. You don't think the player who did it knows you don't think he got back to the bench and and went like holy shit I just I just didn't take a hit in the playoffs to make a play and get the puck out they all know it's about whether you can get them all to buy in and do those things and play and I think that's the one of the hardest things that people have had difficulty reconciling when they think of, you know, the money gap between four players and the rest of the team and they and people see those kinds of things in pivotal pivotal moments. Pivotal moments, holy cow. Pivot in playoff games. Yeah, I know. And uh I feel like Ross <laughs> friends right now, holy cow. But I think I think there's something to be said about that like environment and and building it it out to, you know, have that success and and guys understanding P- players almost always know. You're very, like, they're not, you know, you think Ryan was going up to guys being like, like,
0: you didn't see this. It's like, I actually saw this one clip that you n- had no idea about. Like I think players know. It's just, it's kind of, the idea behind it is reminding them of the certain things that really matter. Yeah. And the really tiny nuances.
1: Yeah. And holding them accountable being like I like I saw it too and we need to talk about this because it's bullshit one of the funnier videos I ever saw of a coach was uh, Mike Babcock actually and uh, it was a practice with Brendan Smith when he was on the Red Wings and he was like fairly highly touted at the time
0: his analytics darling back then
1: yeah and and Brian and Brendan Smith I think he went on some sort of rush and he just did something like weird
0: sounds like Brendan Smith
1: yeah right like he just he didn't pass the puck to the appropriate guy and he just tried to reel on his own and whatever anyways and babcock just goes up to him in practice they're like skating around like pucks haven't even hit the ice yet he's like hey how's it going whatever and then he just like he asked him what to play and he's just like what were you like just tell me like what were you thinking like just straight up like what like what was going through your head like while this was occurring and it wasn't even necessarily uh like you know the way like a father would say that to a a child you know like what were you thinking that was stupid it was more of like it was like a genuine like like honestly like what was going through your mind like like what were you seeing Like, what were you seeing that made you go through this thought process to arrive at that conclusion?
0: What I wouldn't pay to see Mike Babcock and Jake Gardner breaking down some of his biggest blunders. He
1: loves guards. (laughs) He loved guards, though. Like, he was. He he led the team on
0: five on five minutes under Babcock.
1: He was the only coach the Leafs had, I think, with Babcock, with Gardner, that actually liked him.
0: Babcock loved Gardner and loved Kadri and really helped get the most out of those guys. And it's part of the reason 100%. whenever people shit on Babcock, I have to remind myself that I'm like, no, this guy's a very good hockey coach. I, I, I get frustrated with him for other reasons, but when it yeah. comes to the actual getting the most out of players, he's actually pretty good at that.
1: Yeah. So yeah. Interesting on, on Bruce. What about Woodley? I know Kevin Woodley, you, you talked about him and full disclosure, Ian played goalie.
0: Not at a high level. Let's let's slow down here.
1: But it explains so much that you were a goalie. But anyway, carry it? on. What, what 100%. Does it
0: I'd love to know what it explains.
1: Goalies, I can't, man. Either oh, you, I'm weird. You know.
0: I'm I'm a, I'm a psycho. Um, yeah,
1: no. Well, all those things. Yes, I mean, <laughs> everyone here, everyone listening who wasn't a goalie understands and nods their head. And everyone, everyone who, knows goalies are weird. Everyone listening who is a goalie is like fuck Anthony. To so. make life even
0: weirder, I caught with my right hand. So, I mean, just... Uh, I was weird among the weirdos, but... That's uh, goalies, man. That's that's what goalies <laughs> do. <laughs> it takes a special kind of breed to be like, yeah, I'd love to get in front of this 80-mile-an-hour slap shot or whatever it is. Like, yeah, yeah. sign me up. That sounds awesome. <laughs> um, with Kevin Woodley, I've been obsessed with his work for years now. He does a great job at, at what he does. And what he does is he works with proprietary data that does a good job of predicting future save percentage, at least the, the best that I've seen of this, of the private data that I've had access to. And he's one of the best at actually analyzing it. What I learned from him, whether it was on the podcast with us, whether he's doing a radio hit or whether I'm reading an article that he's put out, I learn about the importance of environment and this is both in hockey and outside of hockey. It's just your environment really impacts you. And where you're shaped by your environment, and a lot of your results at the end of the day are shaped by your environment. As a goaltender, the shots that you face, the defense in front of you, the quality of those shots is really going to impact your save percentage. And I think that's something that in the public sphere we haven't been that privy to in the past. We tended to use save percentage as a catch all metric, basically, used it like a war metric to say this is how we rank goalies now. And I never really thought that was a fair way of doing things. I still reference it whenever I'm bringing up the fact that, hey, this goalie's playing well. He has a 920 save percentage. This goalie's playing like crap. He has an 885 save percentage. It's a very simple thing you can point to. But with Kevin's work, I love the fact that he does an excellent job breaking down the environment that a goalie plays in and how that impacts their results. Because I think it's a very crucial component to understanding the position. Because it's one of the the things in the analytics community, we joke that goaltending is voodoo. It's one of those things that's very difficult to predict year to year, game to game. It's so volatile. But if you try to understand it and try to get the most out of the analysis that's out there, it's going to be by understanding the environment, understanding the quality of chances that they're facing and which pucks they're actually letting in. And I think Kevin's one of the best out there at actually explaining that phenomenon.
1: Yeah, you you took my point too from from Kevin. I, I, had, I hate goalies. I'll just full disclosure. I just, <laughs> Same
0: self loathing goalie. Goal
1: goaltending is so frustrating. I just i i said it before on this thing. I'll say it again. Whenever I've coached and I've always just said to go like you need to hire a goalie coach. And b- b- pretty much the max of what I can do for you is you let in a shit goal and you were too deep in your net. That's about the max of all the nerds of what who I try got.
0: to make like I tried to make a draft model for forwards for defense that actually performed pretty well. Tried one for goalies, got absolutely nothing. Yeah, like, it's just it's it's a shit show. I,
1: I never, I never thought about goaltending the way that he explained it, though, in terms of matching playing style to team style. That's a I'd, big one. I'd always just thought, hey, if the goalie's good, you just plop him in and, and off you go Plug kind and of play. thing. Yeah, right? Like, is the goalie good or not? Like, they'll figure it out. And it doesn't work that way. And I, I inherently know that when it comes to players, right? That's why I never liked the Tyson Berry acquisition and you and I argued about it later on that season. I was like they already have Morgan Riley for the power play. Like you can only have one defenseman who's like this a- as offensively oriented in your top four. Like you like you you need to have you could have one guy who's two way but good offensively and then another guy who's pure offense.
0: See I think you could have it just he can't be as brutal defensively as Tyson Barry is
1: yeah. Right. So between the two of them, I was like, I I don't understand how they would both coexist in a top four. That makes sense based on the rest of the group around them when they're also bringing in like young guys at the time. And ultimately, I I thought that was why it failed, because it was just like, well, who's playing power play? The level to which Tyson Berry sucked out because he wasn't on the top power play unit. I will never forgive or forget that it was embarrassing to watch on all levels.
0: I don't think Babcock helped too much with the play style at five and five.
1: Yeah, but like I said, it was. I hope he called him this summer and said, like, "Do you wish that you listened to me about learning how to play defense?" Because hey, he led have. the
0: league in points.
1: And how much did he get paid this summer?
0: Uh, appropriately. Yeah.
1: Right. And um. In a in a summer that's been the dumbest summer ever for defense contracts, Barry led all D-men in points and did not cash out. Which is just the funniest thing of all time to me. Anyways, yeah, the
0: D market's insane. We haven't really touched on that, but wow.
1: Yeah. I want to touch on that at the end of this, but the like at the end of this podcast of going through stuff. But the the bigger point was I never really just sat there and looked at goaltending and said, like, hey, like, is this guy gonna actually fit into the way that these guys plays? That's what that's why I did like the Petter Morazic signing. I think Carolina and Toronto are very similar. I mean, they quite literally hired the same coach to coach the defense and penalty kill that Morazic had in carolina to now be with the leafs so i think there's a lot of similarity i think it's set up for it to be successful and that's about the best you can do with goaltending i mean goaltending is a shit show anyone who's sitting here saying like i know that this guy will be good or i know that this guy will be bad you don't know i can know.
0: predict with 100 percent certainty that you are full of it
1: yeah you don't know none of us know i mean you we barely know for players we really don't even really know for them. But you definitely don't know for goaltending. Forwards Goalt- are
0: pretty – you can get a good idea on forwards.
1: You can get a good idea on players in general. But, but like, every year there's – whoa. But goaltending, it's just – it's not every year there's some – it's like every year all of them you're pretty much going, okay.
0: And it could be, even be a guy who's had four or five years of consistently good results and he'll just have a bad year and you don't know what happened
1: it's it's just too volatile so i I thought that that was a good point that that was a good way to frame it so because you need that extra step of of kind of marrying goal tending style to team style I think it's really hard to create those all-encompassing stats yeah no that's a really good point where you're you're you like you can't mark them all on the same scale because there's too many variables
0: team a might give up these types of chances whereas team b doesn't give up those chances they give up a different type of chance a lot you want the goalie who's going to be really good at stopping the types of chances that your team typically allows and the, t- the types of shots that your team doesn't give up if your goalie's really bad at letting those and that's fine because hey my team limits those really well
1: yeah and like linus olmark that was one that that we had spoken about and my kind of point there was well, he's never played for a team that isn't shit. <laughs> and he's never had a single speck of pressure on him. He's never played for a team who's had the puck. <laughs> he's never played for a team that's played a game that's mattered in this league.
0: Was he in that game where Buffalo was tanking for Eichel? Because that game mattered. Probably. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, like, he hasn't played a single game where they've been in the room and it's it's going, we need a big win right now. It's, it's like, we need a big win to snap this like, 15-game losing streak. And that's not, that's not even remotely the same as the pressure of needing a big win to keep your season alive in the playoffs for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like, those are different stratospheres. So, I, Allmark might be good. And I I actually quite like him. The Leafs couldn't afford to pay that contract anyway. So, it is what it is. Moot point. But that, you know, that kind of stuff will probably come into play more for me when it comes to goaltending moving forward. Now, we... It was just me for Elliot Friedman. I don't know if you listened to that one. It's okay if you didn't. But I I learned some stuff just interacting with with Elliot, not just on that podcast, but but in general about kind of putting things together and and piecing together a little bit of of what's happening, right? Because you know, like, like all of you that are listening, especially if you're listening in the middle of summer while we're recording, in the yeah, middle if you're of 50
0: summer, plus minutes into this. I mean, you're invested, yeah, right?
1: You, you were super charged up when the Leafs lost in the worst possible way, just as I was. And Elliot was on, and I remember texting him that night before we recorded, and I was just like, Are you actually going to come on with me? Like, right after the Leafs lost, like, this is hilarious timing, all things considered, and you know. I wanted blood like the rest of you guys. I've, I'll I make no bones on that. I'm not, you know, but at this point now, like cooler heads have prevailed for my end of things. But at that time, I was like, something needs to happen. Like something, someone needs to go. And, and he was pretty quick to, to be like, I don't think anybody's going anywhere. Like you have to bet on talent. It's, it's a process. And it, it actually did a pretty good job of kind of like, Bringing me down to earth a little bit, saying, "Okay, I mean, you need to look at this objectively." I've said this before. This I've said this number of times since that that first round has happened. I, it's really hard for us to to qualify what happened with the John Tavares injury, which isn't. I don't want it to be an excuse, but it's it is a reality. It is.
0: They dominated the first four games of that series without him.
1: I I know, and and there's there's legitimate room for gripes. I I mean they didn't they didn't put their best put forward in game six or game seven i have a serious problem with that
0: i can't wait for the amazon series on games five six and seven in the first round against montreal
1: i have no interest in that series i'm gonna watch it because i hate myself (laughs) as much as i hate this team but the i have no interest in it deep down i saw the trailer and i want to puke they saw the, the 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 fake dubus mad about mitch
0: marner prepares before game seven of the of the first round
1: little did he know oh he already knew if <laughs> when game six ended he already knew i think i think a good chunk of them already knew
0: I just, I find it hilarious that they were doing this series in preparation for, no, oh, this is going to be a special year. You know, if we win the cup, we'll have this, you know, this series that documented everything. And it's just documenting another failure in another spectacular fashion. They wanted it. And now it, it has to exist because they paid big money to Amazon. And it, ugh, It's, it's ugh. the
1: opposite of Fever Pitch. You know what happened with Fever Pitch, right? No, what
0: happened have with Fever Have you seen
1: Pitch? the movie Fever Pitch with, no, with Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore? Never seen highly it. I highly recommend that you watch it. It's okay. about he's a super fan of the red Sox, and you know that fandom impacts his relationship with his new girlfriend to the point where they break up and then he kind of you know in part realizes you know like i can't be like all in on this team like all, like to some like to some degree like, i gotta live my life and and cultivate my relationships with people blah 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 and, it, and part of it's supposed to be, you know, just another year that the Red Sox lost. Like, you you invest so much into this team, but you can only get so much back out of them. Right? It's
0: very much like being a Leafs fan. Being a Red Sox fan back then is like being a Leafs fan right now.
1: And they had to redo the ending because it just so happened that the Red Sox broke the curse that year. And that was the, the first year that they won the, the World Series.
0: Dave Roberts steals second base. Yeah, no.
1: And extras. David Ortiz and extras again. The bloody sock.
0: Four days in October, the uh, incredible ESPN 30 for thirty on that is awesome. Yep.
1: So, um, I know we've talked about that clutchness or that big game ability, but you just you can't possibly tell me that you watch David Ortiz time and again and just say like like it's just completely random. Like I, I'm, I'll, I'll never accept it. I will never accept it.
0: Is, is this playoff carry price? Is this what we're getting to? I mean, that is a
1: real thing. If we're being honest, playoff Rondo is a real thing. <laughs> is it? It is. i don't know if
0: he's a 40 percent shooter from three he
1: isn't but it but is playoff rondo notable player he is i would say
0: i don't know man I'm, i can't wait for playoff westbrook to play alongside playoff lebron is reggie
1: jackson somehow good in the playoffs
0: reggie jackson turns into like the actual reggie jackson from the new york yankees in the playoffs
1: I think he actually blacked out this year and that's what happened there but playoff Rondo is like a legitimately real thing. playoff prices obviously has some merit to it. David Ortiz in general, I mean there. I mean maybe it might have been a solid 10 years if a game was on the line he was the batter you least wanted to face.
0: We're hopping around like crazy here. Can I make a quick point on Scotty Bowman before we get out of here?
1: Yeah Scotty Bowman was the last one I had too.
0: okay uh, Scotty Bowman. Most knowledgeable man in hockey history, maybe? Uh, most successful. Uh, I couldn't
1: believe how much he. I, I couldn't believe how current he was. And on he's, the what, league.
0: 86, 87 years old right now? And his memory. Yeah, and his memory on things from. He could pull it up from the 60s, from the 70s. He, get, he was pulling up stats out of his head from games one, two, and three of the playoffs this year and just rhyming off all the players on every roster.
1: Yeah, he's only been around hockey for what like six decades and and he knew like time on ice stats and shit from From this this year year. yeah it's just I was
0: like jaw on the floor just kind of listening to him just ramble off on hockey I I gained so much from that but one thing that I found personally interesting was that I I fundamentally disagree with him on on certain aspects of evaluating defensemen no and I'm not going to mention names here of, of like certain players but there are some guys that he doesn't like, the smaller puck movie types, and those are the guys that I always fall in love with. And he kept mentioning. I think
1: there was a caveat there, though, because he didn't not like them as like a general thing. He just didn't like having too many of them.
0: Okay, and I know that he said, you know, in the playoffs when things slow down and the pe- the refs swallow their whistles, it helps to have those big six foot five defensemen who can clear out the front of the net. And I get frustrated with that mentality, but then I watch Ben Sherratt in the playoffs. And it's, ugh, it's infuriating. I watched the Winnipeg Jets against Connor McDavid take hooking penalty after hooking penalty, and none of them are called. And maybe that's an aspect that I need to reevaluate in myself. But I know that when I go about evaluating defensemen, I, I care so much about transitioning the puck from defense to offense, getting yourself out of trouble in your own end, settling the puck down, and then moving it up the ice. And I care about guys who can do that. And if he's 5'9", 5'10", 5' whatever... And he can do that in an elite level with consistency and the pucks on offense more than it's on defense. That's a guy that I really value. And I think that that's something that I tend to disagree with the 200 hockey men and a lot of NHL head coaches and the best NHL head coach of all time. I think I still disagree with that sentiment. And that was something that I wanted to mention.
1: So interesting on that Colorado note too, because do you know what some of the sentiment was coming out from their, their front office after they lost in the second round? what was it it was that they missed they thought that they missed Ian Cole and they missed some of that size and toughness and then I I don't think he's very good but then who did they go out of their way to acquire this offseason as part of shifting that Curtis McDermott who I don't think is good
0: every teams were bending over backwards to acquire him I, I don't know what was going on
1: but I just I thought it was interesting that they essentially came to the same conclusion I mean they didn't shift out but who did they did they who did they get rid of they got rid of ryan graves who is bigger but he again plays a bit more of that like offensive skill
0: well that was an expansion decision that had to be made right
1: yeah but i mean they could have went a number of ways with how they approached it but they you know they got rid of a, a skilled offensive defenseman and they brought in a grindy physical kind of guy so I'm not saying it's necessarily gonna work I just thought it was interesting that they essentially ended up feeling the same way that he did what I really took from him and also along those lines of of Colorado is is we had brought up uh Bowen Byram not playing right like how did you just not give this guy a chance at at any point and and he was pretty quick to to point out while he was he had a long year with like the world juniors. And then he came to Colorado and then he was out. I think he had COVID and then he missed a bunch of time. And then he's like, and then you're going to bring him back in to play in probably the best playoff series that we saw this year. I think the people didn't like the Islanders Tampa series. I loved it. I thought it was incredible.
0: Well, I just, uh, maybe I don't enjoy watching defensive hockey
1: that, the Ryan Pulak dive save on Ryan McDonough I thought was the best play. in the entire playoffs. That was
0: some hero shit. That was pretty awesome. The,
1: the Beauvillier goal in game six to end the playing at that arena with the celebration and the fans was just... Well, is a
0: fun little player. I I know they play defensive style, but he reminds me of like a a little Barzell, you know, obviously not as good, but his transitioning of the puck and creative player. I like him.
1: Man, that that atmosphere and that goal, like that's hockey. Like if you don't like that, if you don't like what happened there... If you
0: don't like that, you don't like playoff hockey.
1: It's true. It's true though. I mean, if you weren't fired up when he scored that goal and then jumped into the glass and that bench cleared and you knew you were going to game seven... Eastern Conference Finals to go to Stanley Cup final and here they were playing probably one of the best teams we've seen in the past decade and they were going toe to toe with them a few guys playing out of their I mean that's
0: I didn't love that because I don't I get to it. enjoy playoff hockey as a lifelong Leafs fan. I it just it's not something I get to enjoy.
1: <laughs> my my point on the bringing up the Byram thing was I think sometimes we're quick to dismiss the course of a player's season. And, and I know this at times because I've, I've contributed to the McKean's summer magazine and, and done player reviews and, and scouting profiles for them for a number of years now. And I know sometimes I'll dig in on a player and I just go through their ups and downs of their season. You know, like this guy started off with like two points in 10 games in October, and then he like blacked out in November and had 14, 10. And then he like settled in and like hit a stride and Was like whatever the case is, but I think sometimes we're a little quick to basically just look at the bottom line numbers, you know, what did this guy do in 60 games, and like, call it a day, instead of like sitting there and going, okay, like, was he actually, you know, really good for 20, and then he missed a few games because he had an ankle injury, and then he came back, and then his production wasn't as good, and then it took him a little bit of time to get going, and then, you know, the last 10 games, he's had 10 points or whatever you know any number of things that have kind of clicked in or whatever i think we're i think we're quick to sort of dismiss the actual timeline of events of a player's career or season much to our detriment in in analyzing them and i think that's to me that is primarily played out with the Andre Cassé signing is it Cass or Cassay? I think
0: it's Kasha, but it, it doesn't matter. Really. He's only going to play 20 games because of injury.
1: And and that's my thing. Like I I'm excited for the player. I he is a good when player. When I found
0: out about it, I was at Dangles event. It was like the first live event I'd been to in almost 2 years and someone's like the the least signed Andre Kasha and I have a beer in my hand. And I'm just losing my mind, and I start rhyming off his zone entry numbers, and people are laughing. They're like, "Wait, you're actually like this in real life?" I'm like, "Yeah, it's not an act, guys. Try, like, yeah, I'm no, I'm I'm cool. It's this real. is this is who I am." But I'm I'm stoked. I'm really excited to see what he can do with this team.
1: I was I was bummed when Boston acquired him because I I really liked him on Anaheim. I, I loved him on that Getzlaff line, and he is a good player. And if he's healthy, I just when I started actually going through his injury history, I mean the guys had like at least five concussions that we know about
0: it's unlikely he stays healthy it's just that's the, the thing with him is when he's healthy he's really good he just can't stay healthy
1: i mean to be honest like honestly i was reading it and reading up on his injury history and and stuff and the way his past few seasons have gone and just a number of questions on whether he should still even be playing this game
0: and that's where we get into the moral side of these things
1: yeah and and i I don't want to go down a whole rabbit hole on that, but it's more to say like when you actually dig in on, on, you know, like his career arc and, and how things have gone for him, it's actually, it's, it's it one, it's actually shocking that he got as much money as he did from the Leafs.
0: What's the contract? If I looked it up 1.25. Right okay. Yeah. Good for him.
1: Yeah. It should have That's been another example of the Leafs it, giving
0: a guy a little bit more than maybe they should, but
1: yeah, and maybe there was a bidding war. I have no clue, but, like, he hasn't earned anything. And and you can't possibly look at his injury history and say, this guy's even going to play 30 games next year. And, yeah, I mean, he could sit there and he could have a great season and, and you go, wow, what a sick signing. Like, it paid off. He actually played. He was able to stay healthy, yada, yada, yada. But, I think, honestly, I think it's a signing where about... Probably 20 teams in the league are kind of, like, laughing to themselves going, I can't believe they're actually banking on this guy. And they are. Like, they actually do kind of need him.
0: Well, I think they need—they're taking a lot of small bets. They're taking bets on guys like Kasha. They're taking bets on guys like Michael Bunting. They're taking a, a PTO bet on a Joshua Hossain.
1: And they're bets that, in a vacuum, each of them, you sit there and go fair. I mean, it's low risk, and it could pan out, and if it does, it's sick.
0: I don't know about the David Camp, uh one personally uh, yeah, yeah you, you Not just like that,
1: that you just like that one more than I do but I like I like checking lines because I'm a psycho I don't know how he gets so,
0: 1.5 million each year for two years for a guy who I think should be league minimum
1: I told you man because he's young and he can play center in the league and that's what happens if you can actually play center in the league it's hard to find centers.
0: I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying I would have spent it on another guy who's not David Kemp.
1: I would have had a completely different game plan. I get what he's done here, and I don't mind it. I think they have a number of versatile options, and I I think he set the table. I went on a Twitter thread before free agency opened, and I basically outlined everything that was going to happen. I was like, he's prioritizing goalie. He's going to put some money into it. We had talked about goaltenders on this podcast. I would mentioned Mrazic, among a number of other candidates that made sense i was like he's probably gonna just it's fair for him to roll the dice with the three young d men and see how it shakes out
0: they wanted a bogosian they wanted someone to fill that role and then they kind of struck out
1: yeah and i'd mentioned that in that twitter thread like they'll probably want a hudden type just in case so they signed Biega. kind of you know i eh. mean
0: great i don't know how many games he's gonna play
1: yeah i mean if he if he plays more than 20 have a problem if he's, so, if, he's pl- if
0: he plays playoff games I mean that's not great
1: yeah right but I think it's reasonable to go into it and say all right like we have these three young guys let's see how it shakes out I th- people I've I've started to approach the season differently in my mind and I, I have this I guess distinguisher be- between a lot of the way a lot of people sort of analyze the team put together I just think he's trying to get to the trade deadline. That's it. Like, that's your goal right now. Your goal, like, it's not to get anywhere beyond that. Like, he's not building the team for... He's building a team for the regular season right now. And he's going to see how that goes. And then you make moves at the deadline. And hopefully they don't fizzle out like Nick Felino and play four games and get hurt. And then, like, they're no like a shell of themselves. How did Taylor Hall do in Boston? Right? Just, just asking the, for a friend. He had five points in 11 playoff games.
0: Sorry, I was just looking at his regular season numbers, where he was maybe the best player in the league. After the training. Leafs finished
1: first in their division, it made no difference. Because yeah, you
0: know, adding good players, adding adding talent seems to help. I don't know, crazy concept.
1: He was nothing. He was nothing noteworthy in the playoffs. So I'm kind of whatever on it. If you remember back in the way when we started recording, and and we had an early one. It might have been with Kevin. You asked who I wanted for the deadline, and I said Palmieri. And Lou ended up acquiring him like way before the deadline and palmieri i i think he set the record for most playoff goals by a trade deadline acquisition which is
0: funny because he, he i don't think he scored in the regular season he was, for he
1: was bad for them in the regular season but then he he hit that like short side overtime goal on on jari in the early on in that penguins islanders series and he just he lit it up anyways i love palmieri as my first choice originally originally but i did love Felino too and I still do, just it was unfortunate he got hurt. Anyways, point being is you're just trying to get to the trade deadline. I think he set the table to get to the trade deadline. And then it's going to be about, well, what do we need from here?
0: It's crazy how much better I felt about the Leafs after the Kasha and Richie signings. Because I started to look at the lineup and I went, wait a minute, this actually makes a bit of sense. Before that, after day one or two of free agency, it looked bleak. You're putting David Kampf in the top six. You're putting Michael Bunting on the first
1: line. Dude, Kampf was never playing in the... I told you what line that this guy's going to be on. What,
0: you think he's a third-line checker?
1: He's a third- or fourth-line checker. Like, I don't even know if you can call it a genuine third-line or a genuine fourth-line. He's going to be a 13-, 14-minute checker, maybe 12.
0: I have a feeling that he's going to be the bane of my existence for 82 games, but maybe I need to worry about other issues in life. The
1: Richie signing was important, though. They needed a guy with a, a higher... Um, floor like, like a guy that you could like reasonably count on to produce and play and be respectable because you can't actually say that yet for uh, I can't pronounce his name Kasha, um, Andre and, Kasha and Bunting
0: Kasha when healthy you can count on him you can't count on him to be healthy is the
1: they're again. decent bets in theory but just like overall you can't actually you, you wouldn't put money on either guy legitimately being very good But Richie, you wouldn't put money on him being very good either, but you can at least put money on him being respectable.
0: He's really improved. I mean, I I know that the joke of uh, picking him over William Nylander, Don Cherry, the the joke's right themselves, but if you look at his production and if you look at his play-driving numbers over the last year or two, really improved his defensive game, really improved his ability to push play up the ice, and he can score. In tight, he can score.
1: The just... the talk about, sometimes people roll their eyes on this, which I think is dumb. But when people say that power forwards take longer to develop, that is generally true.
0: I'd be curious to test that.
1: Look it up. You you will, it takes time. JVR was not good early. He got traded for Luke Shun.
0: Well, yeah, great trade. <laughs> yeah.
1: But another big guy that took a little bit to fill in and, you know, the the thing is is these guys grow and then they're really awkward in their bodies they're like the awkward teen years but in their early early 20s and you're playing against grown men in the nhl and you get wrecked and it takes them a little bit longer to figure out coordination and and using their body and you know when they're in like junior or college or the you know, the CHL or wherever it is they're playing, just simply being big will be good enough there. But, like, actually understanding how to use your body weight and your length to your advantage, like, it's a little bit more refined, what's well, a lot more refined at the NHL level, and it takes them some time.
0: A Lawson in Kraus can dominate in junior because he's the biggest guy, yeah. but when you get to the NHL and a lot of guys are big and you're not skilled enough to get past them, it becomes an issue.
1: Yeah, and he is an effective, Lawson Kraus is an effective bottom six player now. Like, he's not, I mean, he has a 15-goal season under his belt. He has an 11-goal season under his belt. Like, he's not, like,
0: useless. Eh, but I, um, I don't know how much you want to pay for a guy like that. The one thing no, I like Nick is, we, we always talk about the toughness element with the Leafs. I don't think toughness matters if it's, again, playing on your fourth line or it's playing, you know, eight, nine minutes a night, Wayne Simmons in a specialty role, gets the one face-off off the draw to set the tone and then goes back to the bench. I don't know how important that is. But if Nick Ritchie's consistently playing in your top six all season long, that means he's going to be on the ice with the Tavares or Matthews, uh-huh. you know, Marner, Nylander, and you're looking for, quote-unquote, protection. I always thought that was a bit stupid, the concept in general, because I'm never sure if it actually works, but if you're looking for that element, it's nice to get it from a guy who can actually keep up talent wise and can actually produce and actually fill a top six role. So that's what I love about the signing.
1: And I'll just, I have my last thought here and then wrapping up. I think this will be a good point to wrap up on, although it probably could be a full discussion in itself as the off season is kind of concluded for the Leafs and, and I'll, Caveat the Riley thing. I think we have to have a big discussion about that on an, on another podcast. Yep. But the, I still am not sure what their identity is as a team. Like I'm still not sure what they're trying to be, because a good I still, hockey team. I but I still, but like how.
0: So. I know the Colorado, they have their identity of just burning you off the rush and getting four players up into the play. Their
1: speed, their high octane, like they know, they know what their game is.
0: The Leafs weirdly slowed down recently, you know, especially with Thornton, Spetsa, more players who don't exactly have the foot speed. Getting rid of Kapanen, getting rid of Janssen. Their game noticeably slowed down. Even on the breakout, they weren't flying out of their end. They were slowly moving the puck up the ice. It was a more... Let's
1: circle back six times. Hey, it's, I don't, I don't hate know. it,
0: you know. I, I feel. I a, think it's fine know.
1: for the regular season, but it's not playoff hockey. But that's a different story.
0: Okay, maybe that's uh, another conversation for another day. But looking at the roster, looking at the player, like I think your identity is who's playing the most minutes on your team. You know, I think your identity is Morgan Riley is going to be playing twenty four minutes a night. Jake Muzzin is going to be playing 22, 23 minutes a night. Matthews and Marner are probably going to be playing similar amounts of ice time, which is going to drive you insane. But,
1: but what's their style of play like? What what if you are if you are nick ritchie and you come into the leafs you're
0: supposed to be nick ritchie like you're supposed what? to provide that element. you
1: are supposed to be nick ritchie but there's it's like so we talk about taylor hall in boston you think that like taylor hall just came in and they were like of course to some degree like be taylor hall but you don't think marchand and bergeron like take control of that situation and say like you're falling in line and this is what it means to be a a Bruin how
0: much did they talk to him He's, he didn't play with them he played with Krejci and uh, and Smith it doesn't matter
1: but they set the tone for that entire organization everything okay. that they do like the Raptors just drafted you like basketball the Raptors just drafted Scotty Barnes and it's a bit of a big deal right now right because they didn't draft Suggs
0: I'm more of a Jalen Suggs guy personally but Scotty Barnes seems like such a nice guy so I'm cheering for him now I'm
1: super cheering for him but you don't think you don't think Van Fleet and OG and Siakam – set the tone for what the organization is like you're gonna like you don't think van fleet sits there it's like you're we don't care what you're gonna do on offense like you're gonna bust your ass on defense and every every minute you're out there like you're gonna work as hard as you can and that's it and you look at Barnes. Siakam
0: gonna teach him how to miss 20 foot jumpers probably
1: and miss layups (laughs) with the game on the line but siakam worked his bag off as a late first rounder bench mob up to starter up to legitimately good player.
0: He played in uh, Raptors nine oh five. Mississauga represent. You know.
1: Yeah, like he he worked his way up from like where it's very hard to work your way up from in the league, and you don't think those guys set the tone, and you don't think Barnes comes in and they're like, "This is how we play in Toronto, and you better fall in line." Well, you don't and think Matthews
0: you, ta- like you know the way. I he don't plays? know. I'm
1: telling you. I'm I'm asking you. What do you think that they say? Yeah. You think what Matthews going to go there and be like? You have to have the best shot in the league. Well, I, like I do like I don't understand I don't know I'm asking you what's their identity I don't know what their identity is
0: have the puck own the puck move up the ice as a unit and it's a process we're not you're not going to score like that in the offensive zone you see how they play it's a rotating especially when Riley's on the ice we want to create space it's about is it on the puck the though
1: we talked about it they've never owned the puck
0: I think they're owning the
1: puck more they've never been a top five possession team yeah. Under under this regime, so I don't know if it's owning the puck.
0: Well, they were they were a top two scoring chance team. They were a top two expected goals team. I think that's what they want to be again.
1: So is that the identity? It's like let's get scoring chances and prevent them, and like that's an identity. Is that possible?
0: If I could be a hockey coach and I could say, hey, let's get lots of scoring chances and then let's not let the other team get scoring chances, I think that's pretty good I advice. Think you would get
1: laughed out of the room if you walked into the room and said, let's get a lot of scoring chances and let's not give up.
0: Yeah, I would. I would. I think I'd like to think is a bit more nuanced than that. But at the end of the day, those are the results. I'd be very happy. I'd be very content with with my team's identity.
1: But I'm saying, how do they get there? Because the way that they get there now is like a, a few guys play a lot, and they're good. And it's not. It's not repeatable. Line. If
0: they're gonna win a cup, they need a third line. I think that's my ultimate takeaway. And I don't feel great about it right now. I think, like you said, the deadline is gonna be a key factor here. If they can get a guy at the deadline, which Either that player comes in and runs the third line, or it forces someone to move down the lineup to then run the third line. I think that's what you need, because we, you went through this with me a few a few weeks ago, going through Stanley Cup caliber teams. They either have a Brendan Sod on their third line, who shouldn't be there, or they have on the Kings, who is on the third line there that, that absolutely Jared shouldn't have stole. been there. Stoll. And no, Justin no, no, no. Williams, Justin was Williams on. is who I was yeah. thinking of. Justin Williams was there, had no business being there. Of the not. Leafs when Zach Hyman was on their third line, I thought that was the best version of the team because 100. They had three lines that could come at you. I understand the idea of having a what, the best line in hockey. I, ideally, is what you want to create, but I think you need three lines. And right yeah. now, the Leafs team, I see two lines and I see question marks. And I'd like to see a third line if you're a true cup contender.
1: And and I'll. I'll say like these two things to kind of finish. One, I think you're absolutely nuts if you don't think Bergeron and Marchand set the tone for that entire organization. I'm Top to bottom. That. Those guys play the right way.
0: Taylor Hall is never on the ice with them, is kind of my point.
1: But no, but my point is those guys are always on the right side of the puck. They never cheat for offense. They take care of their own end. They sacrifice when needed. I think they set the tone for that entire organization of this is what it means to be a Bruin. We don't give a shit if you score here. But you will fall in line as to how we play this style. Boston always plays the same style every year. Every year. Like, you've never watched them where they kind of, like, veer completely and you're just like, what is this team? Like, they always make things difficult because they never cheat the game. And that
0: starts with their top guys. Matthews and Marner played that way this past season. I know in the playoffs, it didn't work out. The pucks didn't go in, but they were the best versions of themselves 200 foot hockey players they were incredible
1: they were i don't know i think that there's probably too much of a discrepancy which makes it tough with with
0: how much they're played i think it becomes a little bit too much about them too and i agree and uh, 82 game regular season. You can't be playing these guys 23, 24 minutes. That's that's ridiculous.
1: Again, Marner led all forwards in time on ice per game this year. That's the And I get that he's on PK1,
0: one, PP1, one, line 1, but He's not he the gotta, best forward in the league. I don't give a shit. He's not. The best forward he got, in the you got to find a way to save some of that energy for later, huh?
1: No? 100%. It just it makes zero sense. So, yeah, anyways, that's the Boston side of things. And I've heard Dubas say this a few times. I think this is what they want their identity to be, this team that um Controls the puck, and when they don't have it, they're aggressive in pursuit to retrieve it back. He's talked about that. That's sort of,
0: and they've they've come a long way in that regard.
1: Yeah, that's sort of you know. I think he I think he reads a lot about soccer. I think he's been very interested in that Barcelona type of approach of hey, like man, aggressively. I'm
0: that Pep Guardiola, Dubis, and Keith love that.
1: I I think that that's where they're they're at. I'm just saying I don't see it. Like I often don't see that they're throughout their team and it needs to be a team identity can't be like like a few guys can set the tone for it but like everyone needs to buy in and do it i don't look up and down their roster consistently and say like this is a team that's aggressive in retrieving the puck back and
0: it's one or two energy guys it's not a it's not a full team buy-in it's the same and the same
1: sort of what we talked about with their forward makeup in in previous times right it's just like oh like we're not tough so we like traded for Kyle Clifford so like see like we tried to add toughness like it doesn't work that way like you can't just like hey, they we sign signed
0: Wayne Simmons for two years they're tough
1: yeah but you, like you can't just like sign a guy or two and like like you're good like it needs to be either something that like you have as a team or you don't
0: well and I think again you ne- they need to prove that they need to prove that throughout an 82 game season and most importantly throughout a goddamn playoff round and on yep. that note let's get out of here buddy is looking at me I was it and we're down by three Look inside yourself I know what I see